0: interrupting our series on marriage and family for 2 weeks to focus on the momentous anniversary 500 year anniversaries don't come around very often and so we want to focus on what happened 500 years ago that changed history and i would dare say changed your life if you are a christian here today so i want to talk today on why the Reformation matters, and there are printed messages, as always, at all the exits. in your bulletin, you can find an outline. And then all of the messages are posted on the church website, and you can get either the printed or the audio messages, and those go back 25 years worth. So I'm not going to be reading a scripture here at the start, as I normally do. Uh, because there are many scriptures I'll be reading throughout the message. But I want to focus with you for a few moments on why the Reformation matters. That's present tense. It still does matter. Uh, 500 years ago, that would be on Tuesday, October 31st, 1517, Uh, One of the most significant events in history took place when a young Augustinian monk, 34-year-old Martin Luther, nailed his now famous 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. After I got this message done, I read somebody who claimed and said that scholars now think he didn't really nail it to the door, he mailed it to the Archbishop of Mainz. Uh, I am going to insist that he nailed it and mailed it because, um, as I'll explain in a moment, the Archbishop wouldn't have wanted it translated, but Stan gave me this cup this week, Martin Luther, 500 years, and it says nailed it, and uh, (laughs) I, I think that's appropriate. But um, you have to understand, in, in Luther's day, the church door, and now it's metal, I understand, over there, but it was wooden, it was like a bulletin board in our day, where you just tack something up, and if you wanted to debate a matter as a scholar, you tack that to the door, calling for a debate on this particular matter. Luther wrote the theses in Latin, and... The average commoner could not read or understand Latin. Uh, The reason I think he nailed it as well as mailed it is somebody uh, got it and translated it into German. And there was a fairly recent invention by a guy named Gutenberg called the printing press. And that allowed material, instead of handwritten, to be uh, copied widely and disseminated. And to put it in modern terms, Luther's 95 Theses went viral. Uh, They began to spread all over Germany. Some translated them into other European languages, and they began to spread. And so this young man, who had no intention of starting a Reformation, he just wanted to debate an issue, um, changed his history and world history by doing what he did. Luther was born into a German Catholic family, and all German families were Catholic, uh, at least nominally in that day, in 1483. His father wanted him to become a lawyer, uh, and so as a dutiful son, Luther went to law school, began in 1505. Um, That year he was he had traveled home and he was going back to the law school got caught in a thunderstorm, and a lightning bolt struck near Luther, scared the daylights out of him. He took it that God was unleashing that lightning bolt to judge his guilty soul. And so in terror, he cried out to his father's patron saint, St. Anne, and said, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk Two weeks later, much to his father's disapproval, Luther dropped out of law school and entered a monastery as a monk. Later years, Luther reflected back on his life as a monk, and he wrote, I myself was a monk for 20 years. I tortured myself with praying, fasting, keeping vigils, and freezing. The cold alone was enough to kill me. And I inflicted upon myself such pain as I would never inflict again, even if I could. If any monk ever got to heaven by his monkery, then I should have made it. But Luther didn't get any relief from his guilt through all of his activities as a monk. And he continued his studies, and he was an unusually brilliant scholar, He had a spiritual advisor by the name of Stoppitz, and uh, he couldn't figure out this young monk who was so burdened with his guilt. I mean, he just hadn't encountered anybody that was that under conviction of sin. And so Stoppitz thought, well, maybe a pilgrimage to Rome will help him out, and he had some business to take care of in Rome, Stoppitz did. So he sent Luther to Rome. When Luther got to that city that was supposed to be the holy city where the Pope was and everything, he was shocked by the debauchery, the hypocrisy, and the sinfulness that he saw there. There was prostitution, there were people just living totally dissolute lives, and uh, Luther was really deflated. He returned back to earn his doctorate in theology, and he began to teach at the new University of Wittenberg. And his studies still did not resolve his turmoil. And what Luther was struggling with primarily was the question, how can I, a sinner, be righteous before God who is holy? The Catholic Church had a number of answers for that. Things like doing confession, uh, which Luther did, doing penance, accumulating merits, Um, doing good works. And Luther tried everything, and nothing alleviated his guilt. And he continued to study the Scripture for his uh, studies and for his classes, and he began to see there is a huge difference between what the Bible teaches about salvation and what the Catholic Church was teaching. Luther especially spent hours poring over, trying to grasp the meaning of one scripture, Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, that says, But the righteous man shall live by faith. And Luther finally, and scholars aren't sure exactly when this happened in, in chronology, but he finally came to the realization that sinners are not made righteous uh, with God through our righteousness, but rather by God's imputing the righteousness of Christ to the sinner by faith in God's promise to do that through Christ. And Luther, when he finally realized this, later wrote of his breakthrough, he said, I felt as if I were entirely born again, And had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. As Luther grew in understanding the gospel and scriptures, he grew increasingly frustrated with the church's sale of indulgences. And so he posted his 95 theses. They're on the bulletin board outside across from my office if you want to see them. There, um, I read through, skimmed through them this week, and Luther was still in process when he posted those. He had not yet totally uh, disavowed indulgences, but he didn't like the way it was being done. And uh, he put those theses up not knowing how his action would radically change not only church and world history, but his own life as well. The Pope at the time was a corrupt and hedonistic Pope named Leo X. Leo was part of the De Medici uh, clan in Italy, and through his father's uh, wealth and influence, he was made a priest at age eight. He became a cardinal in the church, which is the upper echelons, at 14. And he actually became pope at the relatively young age of 37. Um, He was not a believer in Christ. He made no pretensions of being a believer in Christ. Uh, He had a motto, and that was, God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. So he was taking advantage of the office, which involved a lot of wealth, a lot of power, and living the uh, life of someone with that kind of influence. He, later when he was Pope, somebody quoted to him from the Gospels, and Leo responded, How very profitable this fable of Christ has been to us through the ages. So he viewed the whole Gospel as a fable, and it was a profitable fable for him, and he threw lavish parties that would last for weeks And he uh, was into uh, spending gobs of money on art. It was he who commissioned Michelangelo to paint the Sistine uh, Chapel ceiling. And that took years, of course, with money. And so the problem was he spent so much on his extravagant lifestyle that he drained the Vatican coffers. He had no, no money to operate and he was trying to raise funds to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral, and he did it two ways. He sold positions in the church. You could buy your way into being a, a priest, or if you had more money, uh, an archbishop, or a bishop, archbishop. And, of course, if you really had money, you could make it as a cardinal. So he, he sold positions in the church, and he sold indulgences. Um, Albert of Mainz, who was in Germany, had already bought two bishoprics. He was 23 years old, but he wanted a third one because being a bishop, an archbishop especially, uh, meant money and it meant power. And so the problem was it was against church law to hold that many bishoprics. And it took a papal... um, act in order to grant it. And so Albert and the Pope struck up a deal. Uh, Albert needed the cash to pay the Pope so that he could get this bishopric, and the Pope needed the money to build St. Peter's, and so the Pope gave special privilege to Albert to sell these special indulgences there in Germany, and he agreed that Albert could keep half the money for himself, and then the Pope would get the other half. So Albert recruited a monk named Johann Tetzel, who was um, quite a salesman and a showman, to sell these indulgences. Now, they weren't something new. They had been around since the Crusades. During the Crusades, uh, they wanted to recruit young men to go and fight the Muslims over in the Holy Land, and some guys didn't want to go because they might lose their life, And so they worked out a system where they could buy an indulgence that would forgive them and another young man would go in their place. So it was a complex system, but basically it involved this, that by paying money to the church, you could shorten either the time of your loved ones in purgatory or your own time in purgatory. Just pay money and you would do it. And this guy Tetzel, he was, like I said, quite a showman. He would stage his entrance into a village with wagons coming and, and uh, musicians playing music and all of this and drums beating. And, and he would come into town and then he would prey on these poor people's emotions. He would say to them, listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us. Pity us. We're in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. And then he had a famous advertising jingle that went like this. Uh, When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So he's playing on their emotions, telling them, just kick some money in. When you hear that coin ring in my uh, bucket you'll know that your loved one is out of purgatory. Now, Luther, at first, naively thought that the Pope would endorse his theses. In fact, one of the theses, I think it was number 50, if I recall, uh, basically assumes the Pope is going to be on board with Luther in condemning this crass scheme. The Pope, on his part, grossly underestimated the influence of these 95 theses, which, as I said, were spreading like wildfire across Europe at that point. The Pope dismissed Luther as a drunk German, and he said he'll think differently when he sobers up. And so he just blew it off. But the issue became very quickly not just the sale of indulgences, but a challenge to the very authority of the Pope himself. Did the Pope have the authority to forgive sins on the basis of someone paying money to the church, no repentance, uh, no um, confession of sin, just pay your money and you're good to go. And that's what the issue then quickly became. And uh, meanwhile, Luther was writing against what he saw as all of these uh, things that were wrong in the church. He wrote several books and... uh, Luther declared that a simple layman with the scriptures was superior to both popes and councils without them. Well, as you can imagine, that just made waves in this church that had total authority over everyone's lives. In 1520, three years after the um, uh, 95 Theses, the pope issued a papal bull, which was a um, an order from the Pope excommunicating Luther from the church. Luther took it and publicly burned it in defiance of the Pope. Uh, that led to um, uh, Charles V, who was the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, calling for the diet of worms. Now, it's, that doesn't mean eating worms, a diet was a council, a meeting. And Worms was a city in Germany, and so they held this meeting in 1521. Luther naively went to the meeting thinking, good, I'll finally have a chance to debate my 95 theses. He got there and suddenly realized this isn't a debate, this is a judicial hearing. And they stacked Luther's books on a table and said, did you write these? Yes, he did. And then said, will you recant? will you disown all that you have written? Uh, Luther asked for a day to consider it, a day of soul-searching for him, and he came back and gave a very famous now reply. He said, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds of reasoning, then I cannot and I will not recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. And then he probably added, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. Well, of course, Luther was condemned because he wouldn't recant, and um, he was granted safe conduct back to Wittenberg. A century before then, the Czech reformer Jan Hus had been granted safe passage also by the church when he went to stand trial for his views. And the church reneged on it, kept Hus in prison for a year torturing him before they finally burned him at the stake. And history says he died as the flames licked his body singing praises to God. But Luther got out of there at least... But the thing was, now he was an outlaw, and anyone could kill an outlaw with no reprisal from the state. And so, basically, he's open game. He's going back to Wittenberg, and he's on a a cart. And suddenly, out of the forest, a bunch of armed horsemen came, abducted Luther off of the cart, and whisked him away. They were sent by Luther's protector, a man named Frederick the Wise, and uh, it was for Luther's protection. They hauled him off to the Wartburg Castle, which was one of Frederick's castles, and kept him hidden there for 10 months. During that time, Luther wrote more books, but the most significant thing he did that had the greatest impact was he translated the scriptures into common German. In fact, I read this week in studying for this message, that that translation is still used today as an expression of classic German. And it united all of these different dialects of German that were in that area at the time and served to allow the common man to read the scriptures. In case you don't know, in 1536, William Tyndall was first of all strangled and then burned at the stake because he dared to translate the Bible into English. And that was a capital crime. You could not have the Bible in anything but Latin. And so Luther uh, translated the Bible. Well, as it spread across Europe, the Reformation uh, was... The heart of the Reformation was that it recovered the gospel of God's grace, as opposed to this system of works and even money that had engulfed the church. Um, The Reformation challenged the authority of the Pope and of church tradition, subjugating all of that to the Bible. I'll look at that in a moment, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Uh, The Reformation replaced the Mass with the Sermon, It abolished this whole system of indulgences and merits uh, in order to be saved. It abolished the unbiblical doctrine of purgatory. Uh, It did away with uh, venerating Mary, uh, praying to Mary, praying to the saints, and taught that you can go to God through Christ alone, another one of the solas. Um, It did away with venerating idols and icons and relics in the church. In fact, uh, Luther's protector, ironically, Frederick the Wise, had thousands of um, relics. This is a hair of the Apostle Peter, or this is a splinter from the cross of Christ, or that kind of thing. This fragment of a bone is from one of the Apostles, and People would come and worship these things, thinking it gained them further favor with God. Uh, the Reformation did away with that. Uh, it reintroduced, as Beau mentioned, something that had fallen by the wayside, and that was congregational singing. Luther wrote many hymns. The best known today is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, the... Reformation put the Bible in the common language of the people who before then could not read it. It taught the priesthood of every believer. Every believer has direct access to God through Jesus Christ. It recognized only two sacraments or ordinances instead of the seven of the Catholic Church. It taught that a person's vocation, that is your work, is significant before God. So You're not a second-class citizen if you're not a priest or a church higher up. You have legitimate uh, calling before God in your work, and it taught that marriage is a good thing and that even church leaders may marry, and Luther, as you may know, married a former nun, and uh, they had a number of children and a very happy marriage uh, for the 20 years or so they were together before Luther died. So radical stuff happened and has had lasting impact on the church. Today, however, there are a number of evangelical Christians who are saying that the Reformation created needless division in the church and has led to schism and division and so on, and that we need to come together on all the areas we agree, set aside our differences, and basically reunite with Rome. Uh, There are many other evangelicals who are attracted to the ancient liturgy of the Orthodox Church, which um, really isn't a whole lot different than Rome, just on some cosmetic things. And so many are going back to that church. So I thought it important on this 500th anniversary of the Reformation to give this message on why the Reformation still matters today. To sum it up, it matters because it recovered the gospel, and the gospel is summed up in these five solas. Sola means alone in Latin. Uh, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and glory to God alone. Now, Three of those, uh, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, were used in the 16th century uh, by a number of reformers. No one seems to know who or when the five were put together, although one source I read this week said they weren't systematically articulated until the 20th century. But scholars today agree these five solas sum up the heart, the message of the Reformation. And obviously, I could preach a sermon on each one, uh, but to keep it short, I'm going to cram it all into one message, and you can do further research if you'd like. The first one, the groundwork one, is sola scriptura. And that means that the gospel, and as I'll say in a moment, all spiritual truth, is revealed through Scripture alone. Scripture alone. So we're talking here about the question, how can I know God? How can I know the truth about myself? Um, Is it through the Pope? Is it through the church or church tradition or church councils? Or maybe it's just through a personal experience I had. I was out in the woods and I felt something and I'm sure it was God because of the feeling I had. Is that how we know God, or is it, as the reformers insisted, the only source of spiritual truth that we have is God's Word, His inspired word, the Bible alone? It rests on <clears throat> several key scriptures. Second uh, Timothy chapter three <clears throat> Verses 16 and 17 should be familiar to you. All Scripture is inspired, that means God-breathed, inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, uh, equipped for every good work. Or the Apostle Peter in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 writes... But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But, here's how we got the Scripture. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Spirit inspired the Word. Or, in a very succinct statement, Jesus in his upper room prayer In John 17, 17, asked, Father, sanctify them in the truth. And then he added, your word is truth. Now, in Luther's day, and still even down to today, the Catholic Church will teach, well, the word of God is authoritative, but, and this is the key but, but it can only be understood and taught by apostolic tradition that is handed down through the teaching authorities in the church. And the teaching authorities are called the magisterium. And, of course, the Pope is at the head of the magisterium. And so only that which they hand down is authoritative and proper. You do not have the right to study the Bible and come up with your own understanding of it based even on sound principles of interpretation You have to trust us, the magisterium. And they also add that these teachings of the magisterium may develop and deepen over time. Now, they just opened the door there and let, you know, all kinds of things in. Because where do you get a doctrine like purgatory? Well, the magisterium declares that it's there somewhere. Uh, How about the infallibility of the Pope? Well, that didn't come about till the 19th century when a powerful Pope got them to vote that in. Uh, The Immaculate Conception and Assumption of the Virgin Mary, saying that she was conceived without sin, she lived a sinless life, and she was assumed into heaven uh, by uh, ascension. That... Doctrine didn't used to exist, now it does because the magisterium says it exists. Um, Praying to the saints, many other doctrines, you won't find them in the Bible, but they will say, well, it's tradition. The, The church magisterium has developed and now holds that doctrine. There's another threat to sola scriptura in our day, and that is, Many evangelicals even will claim personal direct revelation from God that doesn't line up with Scripture. The Lord told me. That kind of thing. You've all met people who tell you that. Well, the Lord spoke to me and said. I remember back in the 80s, I was listening to a series on uh, spiritual gifts by a very well-known charismatic leader. And uh, he mentioned how he had married or had not married, he refused to marry a couple where one was a believer and one was not. Well, that's what Scripture says you should do. Don't marry a believer and an unbeliever. But then he said, but the Lord showed me I was wrong. So the Lord was showing him. Scripture wasn't his standard. This, I don't know how he got it. Some inner voice or something told him, you're wrong, and uh, that kind of thing. Now, Luther and the other reformers saw very quickly that if you elevate tradition or the magisterium's views or personal experience or voices from God or whatever, on the same plane as Scripture, very soon those things dominate Scripture, and Scripture takes a back seat to these other things. And, again, this is not to say we disregard, for example... The teaching of the early church councils, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, some of those have uh, wonderful truth, and some of the early church fathers had some wonderful insights into Scripture, but it's to say this, none of those things are on a par with Scripture. They are subject to Scripture, and if it can be shown from proper study of Scripture that any of that is wrong, Scripture is our only authority. And so, all spiritual truth, especially the truth of the gospel, has to come out of the Word of God. It can't come from other sources, and that is the plank, the main plank of the Reformation, Scripture alone. A second is solus Christus, and that means that the gospel is centered on and comes to us through Christ alone, because God is holy And we all, all people, are sinful. We cannot do anything on our part to bridge that chasm. And so God sent his only son, Jesus, eternal God, and took on human flesh. And he is the only mediator between us and a holy God. And that means good works. Some religious leader, be it the pope or anybody else, nothing else can reconcile us to God. We don't have to go through a priest to get to God. Christ is the only way to God. And faith in his atonement on the cross is sufficient to reconcile us, as I'll mention in a moment. Jesus said this, John fourteen six I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through me. Or Peter testifying about Jesus in Acts 4.12 said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Or the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3.24 that a person is justified, that is declared righteous before God, as a gift by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right there, you've got, uh, you've got grace alone, you've got Christ alone, you've got uh, faith alone, and that Christ is the way. So the gospel, then, is not a message as it's often being portrayed today about how you can be financially successful or how you can have better self-esteem or how you can have a happier marriage, uh, or how you can have a happy family. The gospel is nothing less than the good news that as a sinner, you can be right with God through what Christ did on the cross. He died in the place of sinners. And if you'll trust in his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his bodily resurrection— As your only hope of heaven, the Bible declares, God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So trusting him alone as the means of salvation. So scripture alone, Christ alone. Then thirdly, sola gratia means the gospel is believed and received through or by grace alone. And here, a key verse is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. We'll look at the faith part in a moment. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gracious gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one may boast. And then Romans 11.6 declares, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, what does grace mean? Grace is simply God's undeserved favor. If you deserve it, it's not grace. If you earn it, it's not grace. If you deserve judgment and you're given mercy, that's grace. And that is how we are saved, by grace alone. And that means that God didn't choose us based on something good that he foresaw in us, even including our faith. Many people think that. God foresaw that I would believe, so he chose me. No, God chose you, and that's why you believe. And it is all of grace. I like the way the Cambridge Declaration of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals stated it, and I'm going to read it to you since it's much clearer than I could say. Unwarranted confidence in human ability is a product of fallen human nature, God's grace in Christ is not merely necessary, but it is the sole efficient cause of salvation. We confess that human beings are born spiritually dead and are incapable of even cooperating with regenerating grace. We reaffirm that uh, in salvation we are rescued from God's wrath by his grace alone. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerated human nature. So grace alone. And then that leads to faith alone. Sola fide. Uh, The gospel is received through faith alone. Many, many verses affirm this. I just picked three. Um, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, notice that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it is faith in Jesus alone that gives us eternal life. Or uh, Paul in Romans 4, 4 and 5 says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. So when you work and you get your paycheck, you don't think your boss is being gracious. He's giving you what you earned. But... To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, not the one who's trying to improve his life and doing good works and adding up merit, no. The one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, credited as righteousness. So, faith in him who justifies the ungodly. And then in Galatians 2.16, and before I read this, let me mention Galatians was written to counter an error that is very similar to the error of the Catholic Church today. The Galatian heretics were saying, we believe you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Amen. But that's not quite enough. You just have to add circumcision in keeping the Jewish law. That's all just add that and you're good. And Paul condemned that and said, no, it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. And so in Galatians 2.16, notice the emphasis here on faith. He says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's about as plain as it could be. It's not by adding our works, it's by faith in what Christ did. So the Catholic Church in Luther's day, and as far as I know down to this day, teaches that in addition to faith in Christ you have to add things like penance uh, good deeds uh, add the merits of Mary she's got a depository of merits that you can tap into and the saints uh, keep the sacraments and if you do all of that you'll you'll cut down your time in purgatory and eventually maybe you'll get into heaven i was shocked a few years ago one of the popes had died and the guy that succeeded him, the Pope, can't remember which one this was, he said, let's all pray the Pope out of purgatory. So here is the top guy, and he's still in purgatory. And he needs our prayers to get him out. Uh, That's not good news for the rest of us, is it? But they view also justification is a process. It's not a declarative act of God where he as the judge says, not guilty, and he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us, but rather it is a lifelong process. It's begun in infancy when the the child is baptized, and that begins justification, and then it's the infusion of righteousness unto that person over time uh, through their good works, and it adds up over time. Uh, the Councils of Trent was a, a Catholic attempt to refute the Reformation, and in those canons of the Council of Trent, they pronounce anathema, that is, eternal judgment, on anyone who teaches that we are justified before God by faith alone. And those, those councils are, or those uh, canons are still in effect in the Catholic Church today. Now, the Reformers of course, rightly taught. We're not talking about just empty voicing, I believe in Jesus, and then you go on living as you've always lived. They taught that genuine saving faith includes repentance. And you can tell that a person is saved by their works. As James says, faith without works is dead. But the, the key thing is this, those works are the fruit, the result of saving faith, not part and parcel with it. So if your faith in Christ is genuine and true, there will be a lifetime of repentance and change, but don't confuse that with we are justified by grace through faith alone. And then the final one, uh, soli deo gloria means glory to God alone, that the gospel results in glory to God alone. And this is crucial to understand. If sinners can contribute anything to their salvation, then they can boast in it before others. And they will. I remember years ago reading a funny story in the sports column where Michael Jordan scored a record 79 points one night, and one of the other players on his team said, yeah, he said, Jordan and I teamed up for 80 points tonight. Did you catch that? He scored one. Jordan scored 79. And he said, yeah, we teamed up for 80 points tonight. Well, if the sinner can score one and God scored the 79, the sinner is going to boast and say, hey, I teamed up with God, man. That's why I'm saved and congratulate himself. And so the scripture says, no, God saves sinners through the finished work of Jesus Christ by grace alone alone through faith alone, and it's all a gift, and then that means your boasting is zero. Zero. God won the game in spite of you, not because of you. Let me read a couple of scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 26 to 31. The apostle Paul is writing to a church that's beginning to boast in themselves, and he says this, "'For consider your calling, brethren,' That there weren't many wise according to the flesh. <laughs> How do you suppose they took that in Corinth when that was read? You know, not many of you guys have a high IQ. That's kind of what he's saying. Uh, not many mighty. You're a bunch of weaklings. Not many noble. You're a bunch of nobodies. But here's the issue. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, for a third time he says it, God has chosen. The things that are not. Why? So that he may nullify the things that are, and here's the bottom line, so that no man may boast Before God. And then he adds these great words. But by his doing. You are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. There's how we're right with God. In Christ Jesus. And sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written. Let him who boasts. Boast in the Lord. Or another well-known text. In Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 4 through 6, Paul says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Notice why he did all this. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved in Christ. Or in Romans 11, at the end of the chapter, after Paul has been marveling for three chapters on God's grace, he exclaims in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, I'm going to just pass on this really quickly here, and I'm going to talk about it more next week. But it's really important to understand that while God commands sinners to repent and believe in Jesus, at the same time, no one is able to repent and believe in Jesus unless God grants it and God draws him to Jesus. Because the Bible says the natural man is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 explains it this way. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So the question comes up, well, if they can't see because Satan blinded them, How are they going to see? And Paul answers that two verses later in verse 6. He says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. He's referring to Genesis 1, where God said, Let there be light. And there was light. That same God, he says, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so if salvation then depends on God graciously shining into our hearts, opening our eyes to the truth about Jesus, and imparting faith so that instead of trusting ourselves in our own good works, we now say, I am a guilty sinner. Only Christ can save me. I trust in him alone. Then that means he gets all the glory. I didn't even score one point. You know, I wasn't even on the bench. He saved me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. So, come back to the question, does the Reformation still matter? Yes, I hope you see it matters greatly because it recovered the wonderful truth of the good news of salvation that comes to us through scripture alone, not scripture plus something. And it's based on Christ and what he did on the cross alone. And it is received by grace alone, through faith alone, and it results in glory to God alone. So don't be seduced by any other message, because as Peter says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Father, we come before you thanking you for how you worked in history To recover this great message, we all here could be blind in our sins. Trying vainly to work our way into your favor. And having no hope beyond the grave. But because of your mercy in Christ, we can stand before you clean and forgiven. All of our sins placed on Jesus all of his righteousness placed on us as a free gift. I ask, Lord, if any are here who have never received the gift of your salvation, that they would not let the sun go down today without coming before you and saying, Lord God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm Help your church to stand firm on the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not bow to compromising and giving that up for the sake of some sort of unity. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.